The Crude Life, every Monday through Thursday with a week in review on Friday. Welcome to the Crude Life Podcast. My name is Jason Spies, the North Dakota nomad, the shale play prophet, coming to you from the Hatching Leaders Studio. And folks, I'm going to get into a confession and an apology here in just a moment. I do want to just mention that uh, Thomas Macero is going to be joining us a little later in the program because one of the things I try to do, honestly, is try to find the silver lining, the opportunity, because there is so much doom and gloom out there. And we are going to look at that in just a second with headlines because I went and did a search for headlines myself. And my goodness, I mean, take a look at some of these headlines. It's just uh, hard times ahead for Houston as future of oil and gas industry. Guest commentary from the Denver Post. America's oil and gas industry may become another victim of coronavirus. The Denver Post, another one. No, this one's an actual story. Says, like a doomsday scenario as oil prices drop below zero for the first time. And here's another headline Coronavirus stimulus will be wasted on oil and gas. Negative oil prices show fossil fuels are in decline. So rather than focus on that doom and gloom, I'm just going to talk to Thomas Macero. He's with Great American Mining. And what they've done is they're doing the Bitcoin and the cryptocurrency in terms of. Uh, Bitcoin for emission management, and it's a way that can help reduce flaring and emission management and make money during times like this. So uh, we did an interview with him last Friday. Then, of course, we had negative oil prices, so we needed to get a kind of a fresher update interview, if you will, because right now is a very good time for Bitcoin to be ushered into the oil and gas industry as a way to help solve some of the problems that's going on with the negative oil prices. And my, my kind of my alarms went off right away, and I'm like, geez, we just interviewed them last Friday, so let's bring them back on. So what we're going to do today for our interview is we're going to have Thomas Cerro on in just a moment or two after I have a confession and an apology, and then uh, we're going to re-air the one from Friday. We're actually air it because it's available at its entirety, but uh, it was actually scheduled for Monday's podcast, but then kind of I saw what was going on with the negative oil prices, so we had to bump that because it was a Bitcoin-related thing. But then I thought, oh my goodness, actually they are related. So anyway, it's it's a technology thing. So folks, that's what we have on today. But here's what I do want to do is I want to talk to you about what's going on with small business. So much of the oil and gas industry is made up of family businesses. Now, what I mean by family businesses, sole proprietors, and basically where you have employees and then a couple other people that are you know under 10, basically, those are family businesses because primarily it's controlled by the family. And you can have family businesses that are bigger and they're just not family businesses, not like the small ones where you literally become a family, okay? So when I say family businesses, that's what I'm referring to. I'm not talking about Olive Garden. That's what I'm not talking about. The franchises that call themselves family businesses or the 500 employee 
uh, companies that call themselves family businesses because they're not. You have to be smaller to be an actual legitimate family. So that's where I'm coming from is the actual Webster definition, if you will. Okay, now let's take a look at what's going on in the world of small business and the world of family business. Well, the family business, they really got left out in this last round of bailouts. Uh, some of them may have got something if uh, they had a good relationship with the bank and a lot of debt and it was good for the bank because really what happened here with that is the local banks were able to pick who was important to them. And I don't mean that to be crass. I don't mean that to be flippant. I mean that as that's what happened. They worked weekends. They cold called businesses that had lots of leverage and they were able to do what was best for them. And we can argue all day long if that was true, not true, or whatever the case is. But the fact is, the Friday when the funds are released, the bankers worked the weekends and they called businesses that were very leveraged so that their banks and books could get taken care of. And really, a lot of family businesses got left out. So that's where a lot of this uproar is coming from. And I'll be honest, and this is where I have to owe Senator uh, Hoven an apology. And Alex uh, as well, who's Senator Hoven's staff, who I, I lost my shit on. And this is the first time I'm swearing on a podcast. And the reason I'm swearing right now is because I think I might have dropped a couple F-bombs on the senator's staff. And... I do apologize for that. I really do because it's a very emotional time. When I hear some of the stories that are going on with the family businesses that got approved in the month of March and then the PPP program that came out in April kind of really took out the, the sole proprietors and the family businesses because by the time they were notified, all the funds were gone. So I really did, I, I lost it because there were so many different stories that I could relate with. So many different heartstring swear. I mean, from credit scores getting hit to landlords getting bailout money and then they're turning around and now assessing those family businesses for fines because they don't have their rent paid on time because the oil and gas industry shut down last year. Okay, people forget that. Whiting Petroleum laid off a third of their staff last July. They posted $1.2 billion of debt in November, I think it was. So the energy industry really got hit hard. And what happened was, is a lot of this bailout, this local banker bailout, I mean, that's kind of almost what it seemed like, but it was driven by the energy industry. Because the slow pay started last year, the industry slow pay, where a lot of the bigger companies were getting hit because of the coronavirus in China, shut down some production. And then, of course, obviously, we had Russia and we had Saudi Arabia with the OPEC shenanigans. And it was a one, two, three punch. Okay, because remember, this started last year. Halliburton laid off people last year. Whiting, who's become the poster child, essentially, of what happened to the, to the, to, to the mid-companies, mid-size oil companies. And so this whole family business getting left out in the recent uh, bailout 
is really hitting home. So, Senator Hoven and your staff, I do apologize. I from the, I really do. I, I try to be professional. And I even let some personal stuff come out. And, you know, obviously, it's, it's, a, it's a small state. So, I, uh, I, I, I did. I lost my shit. And the reason I lost my shit is because of this. In 2009, I lost my business. I used to have a publishing business, and we were really one of the pioneers on the internet. In fact, in 2007, I was doing live web shows on a citywide talk show, and we had local bands come by. We had the mayor come by. We had all kinds. It was a city-type talk show that we did on the radio, and then we also had it live on the internet, and it was in downtown Fargo. And it was a lively scene. And it was, it was very interactive with the community and very interactive with the uh, traditional media. And we were very, in fact, there was this uh, company called Ustream and they were in competition with YouTube back in the day. And we were like featured on their homepage one night because we had such high uh, numbers. And this was, I mean, back in 2007, like I said, I think it was back then. We even had a Facebook page for crying out loud back in 2007. And we would integrate people in from the local area and all kinds of different stuff. It was a blast. It was a lot of fun. But we lost, I lost my business because of it. I, I invested over a quarter million dollars in the internet and I didn't even get back a dime. Not five bucks. Because back then, nobody paid to be on the internet. Now, when you think about the paradigm shift, okay, I've been through a paradigm shift. My business got blown apart by a paradigm shift, okay? I was a small family business. And quarter million dollars is a lot of money to invest over the course of, say, I don't know, 12 months. That's a lot of money to invest in the internet and not get anything back. Think of all the oil and gas businesses that did the same thing with the stockyard, with their yards, stockyards. I didn't want it to sound like agriculture, but with the, with, with the yards out there and, and maybe the new fleet of trucks or maybe some of the new upgrades they did. So that's why I'm bringing it up as far as some of the investment. It's all relative. We, I made a major investment into my future per, because you know what? You had to go on the internet. You had to. Ask anybody. To get their business, you had to go on the internet, okay? Every marketing director in America said that. So we all went on the internet. I had to go out of business. The Chicago Tribune had to go bankrupt. Every newspaper had to go bankrupt. Because over the course of less than 10 years, the internet almost bankrupt every newspaper. Think about that for a second, folks. Newspapers used to have a 100-year monopoly in towns. Okay, in, in Colorado, you had two. You had the Denver Post and the Rocky Mountain News. And guess what? They did what was called a Joint Advertising Agreement, a JOA, a J, something like that it was called. But they found out that it was easier to share a sales staff and just sell the circulation numbers than it was to compete because otherwise they both would have put each other out of business. So they figured out a way to coexist. Other than a couple places like that where there was two newspapers, pretty much 90 to 
of American towns had one newspaper for the most of a hundred years. So they had a monopoly. And in 10 years time, most of the newspapers went bankrupt or had to refinance to the hills. Okay. So I've been through a paradigm shift. I lost my ass in a paradigm shift. So when I see what is going on right now, I don't see anybody standing up for small business as far as family business. I don't. When I see what just happened, when a lot of family businesses were being stretched pretty, pretty tight last year, a lot of layoffs happened in July, and then they happened in October, and then the oil producers, they needed a price cut too. From the last price cut, okay, the family businesses were stretched so tight, but they were able to hug their kid every day. They were able to have dinner together. They were able to go to their kid's baseball game, and it was all worth it in the end. That's what family businesses did. And you know what? The oil and gas industry rewarded family businesses by saying, you know what? During the good times, we're doing business with you because you stuck with me. You're like a family. You're like a community, okay? The oil and gas industry was about the last industry that actually treated its businesses like a community. So when the political folk got together and passed this small business bailout, a big part of it was meant for family businesses and sole proprietors. That's why it was supposed to go through the SBA. And that's why it was supposed to do what it was originally intended to do was to float people. You know, I don't know, what was it like five, 10, 15, 20 grand was the max. And then you had to pay back something after that. So a lot of people were just going to get like a 10 grand stipend, something like that. And the family businesses, holy smokes, that literally is a couple months of just, oh my goodness, can we eat steak tonight? Because we had to cut our pricing last year. And I invested in a new truck so I could get better mileage so it was more green because I had to go green. I had to. Everybody said for two years we had to go green. So I had to make some minor adjustments into my business in order to go green. Happened to us in the print industry too. We had to invest in soy ink so that we could put a little logo to say we went green. So I lost my business in 2009 due to the internet. The paradigm shift, we had layoffs in the print industry. I was in the publishing industry. I worked with newspapers and magazines. I helped put close to 50 newspapers on the internet. So I, 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 I helped innovate and introduce a new technology, okay? And they're still rebuilding. You go to any local newspaper, they still haven't figured out how to make money on the internet. It's still very difficult to do that. I mean, you've got all kinds of competitors. You've got Ron Burgundy out there competing with every radio station. Ron Burgundy has a podcast, okay? Ron Burgundy from Anchorman. He's not even a real person. But he's got one of the top podcasts going, and podcasts compete with radio because at the end of the day, it's really just audio. So the radio industry has gone through a paradigm shift, too, with the newspaper. I'm sorry, with the Internet. It's just a matter of, you know, the different technologies are being introduced at different times because of the cost of goods. Video right now is being introduced on a whole new staggering rate from Zoom to uh, just 30-second videos. 
It's it's so the television industry is just getting just clobbered beyond belief. That's why NBC went into its own streaming service. So, folks, what I'm getting at is that the paradigm shifts have been around for a while. And when we had, you know, Harold Hamm, James Volker, uh, uh, John Gibson from One Oak, James Volker from Whiting, and Harold Hamm from Continental Resources, these are CEOs and chairman of boards, okay? And they've been on this program, and they've said the word paradigm shift. Now, when that level of folk say things, on public airwaves, like what we broadcast on, on a lot of our radio programs, they have to be impeccable with their word. And they were right. They were right to use that word. They're not like a Sean Hannity on a Fox News, you know, to be bombastic and sensational and over the top. No, they have attorneys and and, and shareholders and competition listening. So they have to be very impeccable with their word. The oil and gas industry is a lot like the uh, securities and exchange industry. You ever talk to a banker, an insurance person? They're not very exciting to talk to because if they say anything outside of the box, they'll lose their job, they'll get sued, they'll go to jail. A lot of similarities with the oil and gas industry. A lot of self-policing, if you will. So when we had these top individuals, these top minds on our program talk about a paradigm shift, we started paying attention. So back when I was... Uh, losing my business, and this is part of my confession, folks. Uh, back when I was losing my business in 2007 and 8 and 9, if you will, we had new competitors come into the marketplace. So we had the Internet, which was a giant paradigm shift. So the Internet came in. So we had Facebook and Google starting up, you know, taking advertising dollars from us, marketing dollars from us, because really at the end of the day, that's what we were going after was people's marketing budgets, right? So we had new competitors because really anybody could do it. MySpace was a thing. You know, the marketing dollars were going to MySpace and all this stuff. So all of a sudden, the government decided to wrap buses. And we lost big chunks of advertising dollars to wrapping buses. And then they got principals to make phone calls so that they could sell ads for uh radio broadcasts and television broadcasts uh, for football games. So they had teachers and principals making sales calls. And then there was the park district, which would get kids to go out and make sales calls so they could get a new scoreboard or an arena. So, you know, all of a sudden, if you were in the third world of publishing or the third world of radio or the third world of broadcasting, you know, like one of the independents that wasn't part of the big conglomerates, you didn't get anything. You were getting all your crumbs now were going to the government because they had to. Oh, we have to support the kids. We have to support the schools and we have to support the, the bus wrapping thing because they needed the bigger customers to do that. So within about three years, we had easily 40 to 50% of our market share get encroached upon and taken out, meaning that 50% of the marketing budgets got sucked up by government and by Facebook and by Google and that sort of stuff, okay? And that happened on a local level. That's a paradigm shift. Well, then we started noticing that uh, the government really started becoming more and more of a competitor for those marketing dollars because now they started doing trade shows, so now the government got into the trade show business. 
So now they're doing, and, and then I just saw the other day, they're getting in the podcast business too now. So this is an interesting time that we're living in. And the paradigm shift for my industry, the media industry continues. And the reason I bring this up is because I'm hearing talk right now that the government is going to start paying oil producers to keep it in the ground, that they're going to tr start treating energy like agriculture. Well, that makes sense to me. It does make sense to me. Uh, whether it's something that we want to do as an industry, that's a whole different discussion. But I can see that happening because over the past decade, the science and the innovation allowed has really churned uh, crude oil into a whole new commodity. So where it is so much like corn and wheat and it's, it's so much more predictable than it was before in terms of how to get it. It's no more wildcatting, if you will. They know where the oil is. They know how to get it. Uh, now it's just a matter of price. So if they can figure out how to grab a hold of the price, well, then there you go. It's like agriculture. So this doesn't surprise me, I guess. I'm very curious. You know, there's a meeting happening right now in Texas with the Railroad Commission. That'll be interesting to see because we do have uh, the CEO of Parsley Energy scheduled in March, or May, excuse me, to come on here. We're kind of going back and forth. And I know he came out and he started talking about a little bit more of uh, nationalizing oil, if you will, uh, in his talks. Uh, like like they're doing. So I'm curious to see what's going to happen there. But folks, I, I just I, there's a few things I just want you to be aware of when it comes to family business right now is they are hurting. I'm hearing a lot of stories, you know, like I said, from credit scores getting hit, uh, uh, civil cases happening to just all kinds of just heart wrenching stories. And for me, they're very relatable because I did lose my business back in 2009. And so we actually built our business to survive a recession and to survive low oil prices because after the 2015 uh, low oil price, I had to tweak some things with the crude life. And so far, we're able, to, we're, we're able to make it through. We didn't get any bailout money. We didn't get it. We didn't get a dime. So if anybody wants to accuse us of that, we haven't gotten any, anything. We did apply. We did apply, but we didn't get anything. So I did go through the processes. So I, I do understand the processes firsthand. And so when people were calling and, and talking and very relatable, uh, that's, that's why I was very relatable because I did go through the processes. And then because I have lost my business back in 2009, that was very relatable to me. So going back to my apology, Senator Hoven, Senator John Hoven, uh, Alex, staff, uh, I, I didn't want to say your last name, Alex. I do apologize for that. But uh, if, if you wanted me to, I certainly will. But I just felt it wasn't appropriate. Uh, I, I, did, I do want to apologize for being very unprofessional yesterday. Uh, there was a lot of passion that came out of me. And as I mentioned, it was very relatable. And hopefully uh, what my explanation here with kind of my Losing of my business back in 2009 when I went through the print industry paradigm shift and the government started really getting into uh, the business of the media. It was, it was very difficult to swallow. It felt a very much like winners and losers are being picked. And um, I learned a lot from it. And today, 
You know, we're, I just got an email yesterday. We cracked the top 100 podcasts on iHeartRadio. So I don't know if it'll be around next week, but hey, we did it, folks. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We're growing. We're growing. My, I, I love the fact that we just keep growing overseas. I mean, it's, so, it's truly showing that this is a global industry. It truly is. But folks, if you have a family business and you are hurting and you're still in business and you'd like to come on the crude life and, you know, take a couple minutes and say what it is you do and that, hey, we're still open. We'd love to do your business. Please feel free to reach out to us. This is why you're here. We're here for this platform so that we can help you so that we can help you because I can empathize with it. I can empathize with it. So we really want to help you. We, we do. So if you need a little bit of a boost and so momentum, if you need some momentum, oh boy, that's when I kick myself because provolone, I do wish we could edit at times, but I understand that it's a double-edged sword because sometimes I say things like momentum and it doesn't come out very good. So well or good. All right, folks, that's going to do it right now. Uh, what we're going to do next is we're going to get into our interviews here because I just want to keep this uh, moving along, this podcast here uh, today. And one more time, uh, uh, Senator John Hoven and Alex and the staff over there, I do apologize for my unprofessional behavior, and I do look forward to working with you in the future and relaying and assisting the many family and small businesses out there as I know you will continue to work hard on their behalf. Tom Macero, Great American Mining. Boy, Mr. Tom Macero, what a week can change. You know, we were t- we talked last week about some of the ways that you were helping uh, reduce some emissions out in the Bakken oil field and in, in shale play USA, if you will. And, you know, that's some interesting technology. And I do want to ask you about that on the flip end of this conversation, but I wanted to bring you in today because uh, we talked about the digital pipeline last week. We talked about cryptocurrency last week and how it works. And it got me thinking that when the oil prices hit the negative mark, that this is like an opportunity for the cryptocurrency, the Bitcoin market to really step up and say, you know, guys, we are a solution to what's going on right now. I mean, I don't know if it's the end-all, the be-all solution, but I can see where the dots would connect. Yeah, absolutely, Jason. I think, you know, you bring up uh, the, the the term paradigm shift uh, quite a bit um, during your podcast, and I would say that this particular day, I wouldn't consider this Black Monday, April 20th, uh, would probably fit that category as well. Um, you know, we when we initially set these particular units up, it was with the intention of really almost becoming like a Trojan horse. Hey, we'll help you deal with your your flare uh, mitigation problem, your emission management, and eventually we would we were hoping that the oil and gas producers would see the the Bitcoin light and see that they could treat it like a commodity, that there were ways to monetize their stranded gas outside of their conventional ones and, and create a digital pipeline. And now more than ever, I would say that we're probably closer to having some major oil producers uh, try this because of exactly what's happening in the market right now. You mentioned the, the emissions management, and I do want to get to that in just a second here. But um, talk to me about that digital pipeline once again, and just kind of you know, if 
uh, uh, not the half hour discussion we had before, but maybe like what they call an elevator pitch, you know, like a 60 second type of a version of, of what the digital pipeline is. Sure. So, you know, right now there's probably four popular methods in terms of monetizing stranded gas. You have compressed natural gas, liquefied natural gas, gas to electricity, and then gas to methanol. And so we're just adding another element, which is gas to Bitcoin. So we take, um, you know, gas coming up from, uh, you know, most of the wells that are out in the Bakken. We hook them up to a generator. That generator is connected to a Connex box, which is powering uh, anywhere from, you know, a half a megawatt to multiple megawatts worth of machines that are powering the Bitcoin network. And in doing so, those machines earn Bitcoin that can either be paid out in Bitcoin's currency or it can be backed out for the producer in a U.S. dollar amount on a daily basis. So there's no net backs. There's no, uh, you know charge charges for delivery into a pipeline they can literally have their own pipeline with their own secondary market right on their site last time when we spoke we talked about you know this was one of the solutions for helping with emissions management it didn't sound like it was going to be you know the solution that was going to take care of the problem but it was one of a you know one of many i because for me i'm all about the have as many arrows in your quiver as you can have and and this is one of those arrows that producers can use now as you have a reduction in oil and gas you're going to have reduction in flaring so my guess is a lot of these guys are going to probably just let the stuff flare going forward um i don't know what you're hearing out there what your contracts are looking like what your business is looking like but uh my hunch is that might be the case and what you're offering i just want to say i kind of know what it is and what it what what, what the technology is and I would think this would be a really, I guess, not only inexpensive way to, and I don't know if that's the right word or not, I apologize, but I, I, I know that the return is pretty good and it's a pretty low cost entry point. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not a sales guy. I'm not your sales guy, but I just, I know enough maybe, about the technology. Go on. Yeah, you take over, please. <laughs> well, I would just say this, the, the data that we have uh, going back to the, the actual equipment that we've put on. Uh, on the patch, when we've backed out the pricing compared to what a producer would get for sending their gas into the pipeline uh, for the past about eight or nine months, and that's just going off of our own data, we could provide more historical data, but our own data is that on a, on a, on our worst month of producing Bitcoin, we were five times more profitable and that's a net. This isn't gross, you know, with all of our expenses in, five five x more profitable than sending it into the pipeline and on a good month up to 10 x more profitable so for us it's just a simple you know like i said in the last podcast uh, both bitcoin and the oil and gas industry is ruthless capitalism and ultimately once both sides understand that that's what's going on here uh it's going to be a, a a very wild ride well that's why i wanted to have you on today to today to talk a little bit about that and explain what my thought was is because right now you know a lot of people are so focused on the shock and awe and the doom and gloom part of it it's important to take a step back and say you know there are there are some silver linings here and there listen it's not always going to be great news all the time but you know where where there's 
there's always opportunity is what I'm getting at. And, th- and this is one of those opportunities. So, um, you know, kind of in conclusion, summarize, you know, once again, who you are, wh- how you can help solve uh, some of the emissions management problem and why this makes sense right now with the negative oil. Absolutely. Well, first and foremost, our sole mission, if you go to www.gam.ai uh, here at Great American Mining, we are helping oil and gas producers build a digital pipeline for stranded gas. And so that's our primary mission. We want to show them that this can potentially be a catalyst and a foundation for a third industrial revolution in our country. And one final thought is that, you know, this is a, uh, I would say, an idea that I've heard you float around for, you know, as long as I've been listening to you. And, And that's this idea of the way to deal with the flaring issue uh, for the entire oil and gas industry is to create a subsidy behind it. And and you've been kind of broad about like how it would work or, you know, there haven't been a lot of details, but in, in essence, I believe that Bitcoin mining is a flare mitigation subsidy for oil and gas producers because what Bitcoin mining does, it's a mechanism to efficiently convert energy into a currency and that's what you're needing in a subsidy. So that's how I would uh, go after that problem. All right. That was Thomas Cerro, Great American Mining, talking about how Bitcoin can assist in the negative oil price issue. I wanted to go to the interview we did with Thomas Cerro last Friday, where we talked about uh, cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and creating the digital pipeline and how the digital world integrated into oil and gas can really go beyond emission management. And so... Since this is kind of something that is going on and it can help right now, it can really be a solution to some of the problems that are going on right now with negative oil. So we wanted to focus on some of the positive things, some of the silver lining, some of the opportunity that's going on while the rest of the world is focusing on the doom and gloom and the negative. Provolone, if you wouldn't mind, let's just go ahead and put that interview through, patch it through if you wouldn't mind, and we'll go right back to Tom Macero, but this is our pre-recorded one from last Friday, April 16th. Tom Macero with Great American Mining. Great American Mining. What company is that? Boy, mining, that is broad. I like that because... What a lot of people don't understand is that the oil and gas industry is technically underneath the mining industry. So uh, talk to me about what it is you guys do for a second, Tom. Well, basically, we have started a kind of new project that focuses on um, targeting oil and gas producers, um, essentially working with them, taking their excess flare gas instead of them flaring it or um, using you know, like an NGL setup, we take that gas for them, we mitigate it for them, we run it through uh, generators uh, with some light conditioning, and we use it to power these mobile data centers um, on site. So it's a lot of emission management then, huh? Right now, the current use case, specifically in the Bakken, is a flare mitigation Uh, kind of angle eventually we want these folks or we believe that these folks if we share enough data with them and they kind of understand it it's very much a black box right now they'll see it as a an alternative to a pipeline we call it a digital pipeline um 
in, in terms of like how we think about it. Yeah, I, I want to get through into the digital part of things because, you know, doing a little bit of a research on what you guys are doing. And, of course, I, I saw the digital currency and Bitcoin and a few few things like that. And I, and I don't really understand a lot of that. So I just thought it'd be good to have you talk about the whole digital aspect of the oil and gas world right now because it is changing pretty quick and there's a lot of companies out there that are trying to figure out how to capitalize on this type of technology and there's a few people doing some research and development and i know you're one of them out there that actually has a few boxes out there so explain the box explain the digital part of this whole process sure so the 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 boxes that we have and there's a number of other um i would say competitors to what we're doing um it's obviously a huge um ecosystem as far as like the amount of uh you know supply that's there so it's definitely a burgeoning industry but we have these containers or you know connex boxes that are are dropped on site that are filled with basically uh, computer servers that specifically do one task over and over and over again and those computers all work together in harmony and they consume a lot of energy. So uh, you, the idea is you, you pack these boxes of computers together, you have a lot of energy consumption taking place. We have uh, satellite dishes that essentially send the uh, computations to uh, where they need to be. And then we get compensated for protecting this financial network, which is called the Bitcoin network. Um, and, you know, for, for us, the way that we look at it is it is kind of a black box and it is really weird for uh, most oil and gas uh, producers or anybody in the oil and gas industry when they first hear about it. We've gotten, you know, I think we went live in December and part of the process was, you know, just having people come by and like kind of stare at it and look and ask questions um, because it's just this metal container with some fans on the outside you know, blowing out hot air and seeing these generators run 24 seven. And we just saw a use case where we could help uh, specifically here in the Bakken uh, um, producers deal with the flare problem that they have and to do it in a much more efficient way than most of the other solutions that are available today. Did you say Bitcoin? Bitcoin. Yes, sir. So um, explain Bitcoin for a second for the average person out there. I know a lot of people have heard of it, but just kind of a maybe a 30 second elevator pitch type of a right, scenario of what Bitcoin is. Absolutely. So Bitcoin was invented about 10 years ago uh, by a pseudonymous um, inventor called Satoshi Nakamoto. Um, we don't know who he is. We No one has ever figured it out. He essentially wrote a white paper in response to the financial meltdown in 2008. That was kind of his white paper, his thesis. And he said, you know what? Banks shouldn't um, have the ability to ruin people's lives uh, by, you know, essentially inflating money and, and, and kind of a lot of like what we're seeing right now. And so he created this as a kind of a test case. Um, and it kind of took on a life of its own. And he let it out in the wild. And it's basically a peer-to-peer. So between you and me, there's no intermediary. So like if you know you wanted to send me PayPal, you could send me PayPal. I could log in, get my PayPal from you. But um, PayPal still has the ability to go in and grab that money from either you or I, even in one of our bank accounts. With Bitcoin, it's kind of like a Swiss, uh, uh, consider like a Swiss vault in your pocket. Once that value hits your 
keys, your wallet, your digital wallet, you're, you are the only one that owns the access to that code and nobody can take it from you. And there's no reverse charges. So that's what it exists as, as a censorship resistant um, proof of value. And correct me if I'm wrong, but Bitcoin is, is a more, more like a Xerox and, you know, copy machine would, would be like the industry. So is there, Bitcoin is an actual term, right? Not, not the yeah. industry itself. Correct. Uh, sometimes you'll hear the term, and I've heard you use it on your uh, on your podcast, blockchain technology. So the underlying technology of Bitcoin is the blockchain. That's this database that is essentially what all of our computers are doing. They're checking this database over and over because it's freely available for everyone to be able to audit to make sure that there's no funny business going on. And it's, I, I tell you, I, I think it is the wave of the future. Uh, I'm, I'm even seeing like uh, there's some sort of new program that gets you paid three days before apparently you can get paid with your direct deposit. And I'm going, oh, that's that's what blockchain is and Bitcoin, right? Where it's just, it's immediate. It's just, it's, it's done, it's done. Um, is that kind of the concept that when the contract is done, you don't have to wait on receivables and all that other stuff. It just happens. Yeah, so I mean, payment-wise, uh, well, I would say settlement-wise, it's pretty close to instantaneous. Yeah. Um, there is a couple-minute, you know, um, period where everything is kind of confirming, but once it's confirmed, there's no going back. Yeah. Uh, and you got you got it in your, you know, it's in your possession within maybe 15 minutes, and then there's, you know, and I've seen people send amounts. You know, I think there was a, a transaction the other day of like a 40 billion dollar transaction that was sent for less than 70 cents. And it was in someone else's wallet within five minutes. So, so imagine trying to send a $40 billion wire and what, how long that would take. Right, yeah. The thing that I'm trying to wrap my arms around here, wrap my mind around more than anything, is that what I'm hearing is that these little black boxes essentially can create Bitcoin or create some sort of digital currency correct value out of the flared natural gas or the controlling of the emission management of the natural gas is that what i'm hearing yes sir yes sir uh, okay, so explain what that I to me because that is so bizarre to me because i read about this in canada a few years ago and i know I, and i know what's going on i just don't understand it and don't you know you don't have to give away your proprietary secret by any means but i'm sure there's a dumbed down version somewhere well, really, it, it involves incentives, right? Uh, Bitcoin mining is very similar to uh, the oil and gas industry as it, it really is ruthless capitalism. And so there's a race for uh, people who are involved in this industry to find the cheapest, most scalable, uh, reliable power they can, because the lower you, you get that number and the more scale that you get, the greater the chances of you being able to mine bitcoin very cheaply and more efficiently than your anyone else out there doing it so you you've got this constant um push of capitalism trying to innovate to find the best ways to actually mine it and so you know typically for the first you know six or seven years of bitcoin uh well at least the first three years most people did it in their house you could actually mine bitcoin on your laptop mm -hmm. and then as com competition started heating up 
you start you started to see the shift to uh, specific types of uh, computing devices that were that would do it. And now we're in a stage where we've got you know large data centers, you know, in more I would say like a traditional data center warehouse model where you'll see them stuffed to the gills with these things, um, but they're on grid power. And so there's certain you know whether limitations from a regulatory perspective or people don't want them there. Uh, now we're seeing people go into, you know, what we're doing with the oil and gas industry and saying, hey, you've got all this pent up, um, you know, free energy that's literally just being vented out of the ground or being flared in most of the cases in the Bakken. And we come along and say, hey, we can actually turn that molecule into an electron, which will then essentially provide our business for us. So we come alongside, we take the gas in a very um, you know, we don't we don't require a lot of, um, I would say, um, overhead for that to happen. We just simply use a, a generator that's used on probably 90% of the other wells that are out here. And then we plug our bo- box into those generators. And as long as the gas is free flowing and um, somewhat cleaned up, we can pretty much stay on 24 seven. This is absolutely incredible to me, the whole concept of this. And I'm still having a hard time wrapping my head around it. And it's, to, yeah, so, it's quite a wormhole. Well, it is, you know, and I don't know how deep you want to get with the wormhole, um, but I, I, I'm i going to start shallow here, okay? I like to wade in the shallow end for a little bit before I get in the, I can get deep, 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 deep in the deep end, but I understand I lose people pretty quick. So let's start in the shallow end here. Let's say I'm an operator. You deal with operators, right? Like the oil yes, companies? Sir. Okay. I'm, oh, I imagine you'll deal with anybody that'll give you money, but those, those prime prospects are probably the oil companies. So let's say, you know, oil company ABC calls you and says, I want to know about this Bitcoin and stuff, you know, this black box you have. Explain to me how you're going to make me money, son. Well, I think right now what we're trying to do is we're still in the experimentation stage to understand if it can make money out here. So no one understood the amount of downtime or anything like that. Whereas in a typical setup, we can go in and plug in and we know our stuff's going to run 24 seven. So for us, I think what we've been trying to do is, and I think this goes probably pretty similar with the other folks that are doing this out there right now is we're, we're trying to get as much data as we possibly can into the oil and gas producers hands to determine if this is a viable solution for them to use in the future, because in theory, they should be, they will be the ones in the, a year or two from now who will be the largest of these operators in the world once they understand the economics behind it. So, but it's kind of like leading a, you know, a horse to water, you really got to, um, you know, it's definitely a good old boys network. And this is kind of weird <laughs> to them, uh, and these, at least initially. And so it's, it's as simple as just getting it on site and showing that it works. And once they hear it, they see it, it, they get reports with their gas consumption reports coming back every day that we're doing exactly what we said we we're going to do. Um, then I think the, that, wormhole gets deeper because then they start saying oh well um well how much money are you making off of this and um how do you guys calculate um you know your profitability and then there's aspects of how do you deal with this from a 
um, a perspective of do you can you short this? Can you treat this like a um, like you know um, like you would a natural gas liquid? So there's all of those types of conversations that are unique to oil and gas that we're having that we didn't even realize we were going to be able to have at this point. So it's very much uh, you know early stages wild wild west type thing. I love. Uh trying to go back as far as I can and, and take a look at the history behind things and try to take a step back. And I always joke with people, you know, I'm a Libra, so I take take a topic. Oh, and I, same. Oh, okay. So basically you understand what I, I assume you understand what I'm talking about is you'll take a topic and you'll bat it back and forth like a game of mental ping pong till it's water vapor. You know, it's like you, just, you, 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 you go back and forth like the scales do. It doesn't mean you're you know, necessarily accepting it, but your your mind goes through the different back and forth and back and forth. And when I look at what you're doing here, I, I think back to what I was always told about the origin of money. And the word currency comes from a bank, you know, the, the river and the flow of energy. And money is nothing more than energy. And so when you, right. you look at currency and the Egyptians who invented currency with actually the word, you know, I don't want to get too much into it, but there's a certain God that if you spell the name and you put the double S and the I together, it actually creates the dollar sign. And when you look at the word bank with the river banks, they control the currency of money and they direct the currency of money. You know, so when, when you think about currency and money as energy, I understand completely what you're doing and I, I get the whole thing. And when you can convert energy into digital currency, it makes total sense to me. But I don't think the average person looks at it in that existential way. And that's getting into the deep end, my friend. Absolutely. Um, you know, that's one of our taglines on our website is uh, Bitcoin equals the currency of energy. So we, 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 we think that way as well. Um, and for us, that's why we, we literally are just trying to look at this as a flare mitigation um, kind of angle right now, because it does take a while to kind of wrap your head around it and to, un and to become more comfortable. Now, you know, when Bitcoin first started out, it traded at like, you know, a couple cents uh, and took years and years and years for it to become um, acceptable or an accepted traded, you know, commodity. Um, within the past two to three years you've seen the value go up i'm sure people remember during the top of uh, 2017 where bitcoin reached twenty thousand dollars per bitcoin right now um it's around seven thousand dollars so you know just in the last 10 years it's gone from pennies to seven thousand uh, dollars or up to 20 and down to seven so there's definitely some inherent value there and i believe most of that value is in the amount of resources people invest in to protect it which ultimately is protected by the amount of energy that these servers um are consuming so it's um, it's very it's a, a very symbiotic relationship that it has with energy i i think it's absolutely incredible because it, to me it's the evolution of money uh, again you go back to the currency the original time and you know, some some people argue that the original, you know, currency and money, the reason that they used the river was because the person that had basically controlled the distribution supply chain was the person that understood how to navigate the river. And that allowed them the advantage 
to have a bartering system because our currency is really nothing more than a bartering system. Yeah, absolutely. So yes. as, as you flash forward, backed by gold, yada, yada, you take a look at paper dollars. I think it says right on the paper dollars it's a promissory note or something like that. And so uh -huh. I, I, I'm, not, I, I'm not trying to get into a Federal Reserve conspiracy thing. I'm not trying to get into a political argument. What I'm trying to say is that what a dollar is is a promissory note. And it's the promise that that person that has that promissory note is going to utilize their energy in order to give you what you want for that promissory note. And now you flash forward it forward to the digital currency. I remember the Super Bowl ad where there was a, a like everybody was partying in line at this deli or this coffee shop and swiping their Visa card. It was a Visa ad and they're swiping their card and. All of a sudden, the guy with cash, the clunky guy with cash comes and it just stops the party. The music stops. It's like the record screeches, the whole deal. I got a couple texts and they said, well, cash is done. So digital currency is the future. And to me, what you're talking about is really one of these kind of uh, uh, gold mining type of where it's picking and mining new digital currency. Does that make sense? Yes, sir. Uh, yeah. And I would just say that, you know, with the oil and gas folks that we're working with, you know, there is this um, kind of hurdle that we have to get over from, you know, just an educational standpoint where if they wanted to invest in these solutions themselves and, and utilize their own gas, um, they could potentially never, ever, ever have to touch Bitcoin if they didn't want to. Um, the way that the markets work currently is that at the end of every day or even near instantaneously, they could trade out to U.S. dollars. So if they're thinking about it from a uh, perspective of like how we would how they would essentially just flow into a pipeline and they get their 30, 45, you know, their net type um, payments, they could theoretically just say, no, actually, I'd like my payment at the end of the day uh, in U.S. dollar for what? Um, you know, what I earned from my box and um, many folks operate in that way. I, I just see this as the future and, and, and not only the present because it's happening presently, but uh, this is the future and this is a great solution to uh, mission management. Now, it's not going to be the end all to be all, is it? I mean, they're not talking about, you know, turning the flaring issue overnight, but this is this is one of those innovative solutions that is going to be part of you know be be part of the all of the above right that that's kind of the idea behind this is that this is going to be part of a bigger plan in terms of reducing emissions i would say that it's at least on the playing field now um, we've had a couple of conversations and i know some other folks are working on uh, similar projects too who are working with research departments uh, in the area to validate um, exactly what we're doing um, so yeah i, I think once there's some more third-party peer-reviewed uh, type studies that are out there that kind of demystify what's going on. Uh, I start. I I will. I would think that you'll start to see a lot more adoption because what you're doing at that point is you're actually creating a subsidy <laughs> to deal with the, the flaring issue at that point because like then there's actual like a real value to say oh actually I can turn you know typically you know price of per MCF is like in the dollar seventy-ish range. We typically see, even on down months, uh, anywhere from 5 to 10x that in terms of the value that we can turn gas into into Bitcoin. Well, I, I think this is, like I said, you know, 
one of the reasons why I'm glad you came on the program is to educate people because personally, I'll make a prediction right now that cash is going to be almost next to gone in the next year and a half. And part of it's going to be what's going on right now with the coronavirus pandemic, the COVID shutdown. There's going to be a transition into digital currency at a faster rate than would have happened otherwise. And that's just because nobody can go anywhere to shop. <laughs> so they're being trained to use digital currencies. So is it, have yeah. you thought of that at all, how this is probably going to really benefit a lot of what you guys are doing in terms of the direction that really the world is going? Yeah, I mean, the, the world is definitely going to or, or is moving in that direction. I think what sets Bitcoin specifically apart from, you know, let's say PayPal or Venmo or any of these other, you know, uh, more centralized digital uh, transactions is the fact that you cannot be censored from it um, via political correctness or any type of political pressure. No one can stop you from sending a transaction uh, to another address. Um, and so I think in that scenario, it's going to become a very interesting, this is just my philosophical, I guess, take on it is that it will become a very powerful tool for, um, from a free speech com component where people will store their value because they know that they can't be censored in that way. I mean, right now you have literally banks, um, um, essentially not allowing, to have to do business with certain folks because they have specific political leanings um, as far as businesses and stuff like that. So um, that's the difference with Bitcoin is that you cannot censor it. That's interesting. I never thought of that angle before because that is an issue where you're having a lot of banks that are pressured right now to drop their backing and financing of fossil fuels. That's, that's a legitimate thing. And if this is a alternative for financing, this is going to be huge. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to get, go down too too down like this conspiratorial or global, um, you know, uh, political realm. But you know, there's there are nation states right now who do have sanctions against them. Who I know for a fact, and you know, there's been published reports that are mining Bitcoin at at, at very large industrial rates. You know, tens tens of megawatts worth of power to mine Bitcoin specifically to get around some of these um, types of um, restrictions on them, on them being able to do currency to, to do transactions. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. And folks, you're witnessing it right before your eyes. And I, I remember telling somebody Bitcoin five years ago, I said, well, as soon as they get an ATM, let me know, you know, because my, my thing with like Bitcoin was it just it needs to get more mainstream and it needs to be more accepted. And Bitcoin is digital currency to me. They're kind of like the Xerox of of, um, uh -huh. you know, I mean, I, I, is it, when somebody says Xerox me a copy, what they mean is make me a photocopy, please. Or when they say give me a Kleenex, they mean tissue. And and Bitcoin was like that. You know, they were they were first in and they got that. But that is where we're going, folks. And it might be called PayPal or Venmo, like you said, but it is a digital currency that is basically taking over. And I, I got to I, I just got to ask the question, is this is this basically going to be the new currency I'm, in your prediction? Like when you take a look at rubles and dollars and yen and all that different stuff, do you, do you see where maybe the Venmo, the PayPal or the or the uh, Bitcoin is going to be kind of the global currency. Hmm. 
I do think that that is the ambition behind the originators, um, you know, desire to create it was for an alternative. I would say this, though, that I see it more as a universal store of value. So almost consider it more like a digital form of gold. So I could see people moving their wealth um, into this to kind of, you know, either shelter themselves or to have uh, to make it portable. I, you know, I, I think with capitalism, um, there, there needs to be, I don't think it, it, it works as good of, as a dollar um, from like the frictionless standpoint, um, at least currently. That's Digital my own take. capitalism. Interesting. You got my mind going a couple different directions right now. I'm thinking of a second life site and digital capitalism. Darn it. All right. We got it. We're getting too deep now here, folks. All right. We better get back into the shallow end here. So you're currently working with some customers, and I don't necessarily expect you to name their names or anything along those lines, but go ahead and give yourself a plug and explain what you can do and how you're helping some companies out there uh, in Shale Play USA. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we are working with a, I would say, a, a, a pretty decent sized uh, oil and gas producer in the Bakken, definitely top five or so, um, who saw an opportunity to basically invest in um, determining if this could be a potential um, avenue. And, and let me be clear, their focus was to do this as a way to validate uh, a possible flare mitigation um, component to it. So it wasn't pitched to them as like, here, you can make this magical internet money. Um, it was simply a decision of, Hey, this actually can consume gas. Uh, we can, you can take our gas. It can can convert that into energy. And therefore we, we can, you know, essentially use this wasted resource right on our well pads. Um, so we're doing that, uh, right now for, um, our customer. And I know that there's a number of other, um, of our competitors who, you know, I, I wouldn't even consider them competitors. There there's guys that are trying to do, uh, who believe in what we're, we're doing as well. And, uh, they're trying to make a dent in this as well. And they do believe it. They do. I want to say this most importantly is the reason why we could have gone and got cheap power from a number of different sources. So, there is a draw for us specifically because we do believe that it's a uh, a national security element. Like we want there to be a lot of power used in the Bitcoin network here in the United States. And then secondarily, um, we do believe that there's a, you know, a, and I've heard you talk, I mean, ad nauseum during your shows about this black eye in the oil and gas industry with the flaring problem. And this is a, this is a solution to it. So that's how we see things. And that's why I talk about it as ad nauseum because not only um, do I talk about it, the regulators and the oil industry is the one that set the bar. And the Greta's do as and, well. And so all I'm doing is saying, look, here's another company that can help you be a part of the solution. And and I get it. Not everybody has the finances to do it. But let me tell you, man, I've seen the government subsidies be handed out for a lot of different things. And that's why I've been an advocate that. Why don't we transition or shift some of those solar and wind subsidies over to the natural gas side of things? Because we could solve, I mean, we could solve this flaring problem in five years because there are so many smart, clever capitalists like yourself out there. And then you got the other side of guys, you know, side of things. They're trying to do like, you know, power generation and sell the batteries on the open market and, 
and methane and all these different things. So there's a ton of little solutions that'll be part of the problem. And I just see where just a little shift of subsidies would take care of it, you know? And um, anyways, that's just me because I listen to what the people say and I try to take a look at if they're hitting the benchmarks that they're saying, not me, they. And if they're not hitting their benchmarks, well, maybe it's not working out. Maybe we should look at some other ways, you know, like the like the Bitcoin guys. Like the like I used to I used to love giving your example. Like you got these crazy guys out there mining bitcoins at the well site. Other guys, you know, six months from their family checking monitors at well sites, living in shipping containers and stuff like that. People don't get that. That's real. And so I think those crazy guys should be re- rewarded. That's all. So anyway. I uh, appreciate you listening to the podcast, by the way. That's nice of you. Um, Absolutely. Hey, I did want to ask you one thing, though, is um, I, you know, I, I've been one thing, another that I've been very much vocal about is I get that, you know, the oil industry ebbs and flows and the economy goes up and down. But at the end of the day, there's still a ton of money out there. In fact, there's more money today than there was yesterday because Congress just printed, what, another billion dollars or trillion dollars? So there's more money on the planet than before. Now, I get that less, the less people have more money, but there's still the same amount of money. So you got to make a better steak sandwich and you got to build a better mousetrap. Okay, that's just kind of the way it goes. Is what you're talking about going to bridge that kind of... Um, financial gap and maybe allow some people to do some sort of uh, international trade a lot easier because, you know, there's uh, importing and exporting laws that are really beyond a small business owner. But I I see the day where this digital currency can kind of accelerate some international trade. Am I, am I in the ballpark there? Well, that's one of the biggest use cases for Bitcoin currently is overseas, um, uh, payments, whether it's, you know, people who are here sending money back to, you know, their family in a different country or in business environments, uh, Bitcoin is absolutely used as a way to um, uh, basically replace the wire transfer uh, system. That's how I kind of looked at it, too. It was a more sophisticated wire transfer system that was going to be accepted like a Visa MasterCard day to day. But now we're talking about just eliminating borders if you will and countries and everything so anyway okay great uh very fun talk today by the way i didn't expect to go in the deep end i used to do a show uh back in my former days i hosted a three-hour nighttime show and i was i was the lead-in to the conspiracy alien overnight show and so the last hour of my program i would get into some kind of some fringe topics so i love it anytime anybody wants to talk conspiracy i'm like ooh, fun <laughs> oh my I always, well it doesn't mean i believe in them but i always like talking about it because it really expands the mind and you said you're a libra so i i, I think you understand what i mean when i say bubble gum for the mind sometimes absolutely. it's just fun to chew it around you know absolutely and uh you know just thinking about like where we are in the current uh, reality of the world we're living in and having to wear a mask and not being able to go places, those things would have been looked at as conspiracies uh, years ago if you would have talked about it. And this is what we're dealing with. No, you're right. You're exactly right. In fact, the crude life's motto in the beginning of uh, 2020 was ready for anything. And we were talking more about, you know, 16 year old girls with Asperger's being used as political weapons and using children to get banks and stop funding petroleum 
uh, based companies and things like that, where um, at the end of the day, it was, oh, are you ready for a shutdown? I mean, we didn't even see that coming because ready for anything. We actually meant ready for anything. And one thing, by the way, to give ourselves a plug, as long as I have an opportunity here, our business was ready for 2020 and we were ready to have to go, you know, from our house and that sort of thing, because we did uh -huh. expect this, not to this level, but we expected some shenanigans and we expected some some dalliance because capitalism has been under attack for a long time. And the only industry left, in my opinion, that actually allows capitalism to work is the oil and gas industry. Every other industry is so subsidized or controlled. And the example I, and you're a technology guy. I don't know how much time you got here because this could open up another five to 10 minutes, but the example okay. I, I, I give on capitalism all the time is Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs had to get an okay from Hewlett Packard before he could start Apple because Steve Wozniak worked part-time for Hewlett Packard. I believe it was Hewlett Packard back in the seventies. And back then, they had their intellectual property so guarded that part-time employees had to go and ask for an okay before they could go start their own thing. Now, luckily for Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak, Hewlett Packard was not into that existential view and that 5,000-foot view. Otherwise, Apple would have never started. People forget that, that that's how controlled a lot of industries are today. Do you know what I mean by that, sir? Oh, absolutely. I remember reading um, the book of, of like how Bill Gates got started and how uh, the, he took the, the other route as far as being a little bit more cutthroat with, with some of those, um, uh, the abilities to control some of the intellectual property. And it's specifically, I think he, he, uh, he, he, he got Steve pretty good. Steve, uh, my understanding is Bill Gates basically did what was known as reverse engineering. And yeah. now Steve Jobs tried to do it too. Don't get me wrong, because Xerox ended up being the loser in this. Because if Xerox doesn't invent the mouse and the user interface, the graphic user interface, neither Microsoft or Apple have that idea. And that was kind of the, you know, that was kind of what's what was so interesting about it is that uh, Bill Gates basically was able to reverse engineer and pirate uh, what Xerox had and apple tried to steal legally <laughs> if that makes sense apple yep. tried the sophisticated legal route bill gates just went in and said yeah let's do this send it over to china have them do it in a different country and then we'll turn around and do it this way which again i'm not complaining about at all i'm just saying that's what happened and that's the world we live in mm -hmm. and again at the end of the day the oil and gas industry in my opinion is the only industry left where an average Joe, an average Jamoke, who may or may not have a high school education, can take a look at this vibrating tube every day for two years working an oil and gas rig and say, you know what, I can get that tube to vibrate twice as fast for, twi for less cost, and within a year he's a millionaire. I don't know if that can happen in any other industry anymore. That's a great point. Absolutely. Yeah. And, I, and I just wanted to thank you too because – um, you know, we got into this market kind of by chance. We, one of the guys who works on our team uh, lives in, in Utah and he comes from an oil and gas background and happened to know a water, uh, the owner of a water treatment plant who focuses on, you know, uh, oil wells. And so 
we reached out to them and said, hey, we got this wild idea. We'd like to, you know, we noticed you have a flare stack. Um, and they have um, specific flaring caps tied to, you know, to what they do there. So we said, hey, if we can make that headache go away for you, um, you know, could we come and, like, hook up a generator to it? And it was very much a similar scenario where we were trying to help make his business a little bit more efficient. And um, that's our that was my first kind of, like, entry into this and then once we got introduced to the company that we were working with currently in north dakota i wanted to consume as much info as i could about what was going on and i stumbled upon your podcast back in august of this past year and uh you know i'm just very thankful for the type of folks that you have on and the amount of education and most importantly your attitude of of uh it's like you can tell your always trying to lift up the industry, which is good because, you know, there's a number of people that can complain all the time, but, um, you know, yours is very different from a lot of the other podcasts that are out there. Well, I appreciate that. And um, if you want to let me know your address, I'll send you a check because I've never gotten an endorsement like that <laughs> how before. I just leave my, how about I just leave my URL for the, for the site? Yeah, I, I appreciate that very much. You know, that's nice okay. for you to know because sometimes – I get some emails that don't say that. They say the exact opposite. One guy, one guy called me a, oh, I can't even use the word, but LIB was at the end of it, and I don't even, I, I mean, I can't even clean it up, actually. It wouldn't even be a sentence. Never mind. So I, can't, <laughs> I get emails that I can't clean up or they won't be sentences. Okay, we'll just leave it at that, yeah. Uh, well, go ahead. Give yourself a plug. You know, um, I do know who the operator is that you're working for, and yeah, it might be one of the top five in the Bakken, but it's definitely, you know, probably one of the top three in the country. So um, you are working with one of the major operators, so you are legit. You do know what you're talking about. You've got something that is showing promise. So if somebody would like to, you know, reach out to you and maybe take a look at your numbers or talk to you a little bit more about it, go ahead and give them your information. Absolutely. Thanks, Jason. Uh, the, the website is www g a m dot a i and we kind of affectionately refer to ourselves as gam uh, for great american mining so if you'd like to go to our website there's a contact button on there that immediately goes to my email uh there's plenty of information on on the site as well for oil and gas producers to get a little bit more uh familiar with how we're trying to help them yeah. The Crude Life is sponsored in part by Historic, the first full conversion refinery to be built in the U.S. in over 40 years. Innovative, the cleanest, most technologically advanced downstream project ever. The model for future shale basin projects. Groundbreaking. The Davis Refinery. That's going to do it for the Crude Life Podcast. Thank you very much, Thomas Cerro, for coming on our program twice here to talk about the negative oil price issue as well as the integration of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency into the oil and gas industry. Also, the expanded unemployment benefits are available at the Crude Life's uh, podcast here. We have some of the links there available. 
And I'd like to thank our sponsor today, Royal Creek Consulting, Royal Creek Consulting Services, the oil and gas industry, and provides business development services and supply companies. They're currently working in Virginia, West Virginia, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Louisiana, Oklahoma, Colorado, New Mexico, and Texas. For more information, visit their website, royalcreekconsulting.com. That's royalcreekconsulting.com. Of course, you can always go to our Crude Life show page to check that out as well. We have the links available there. All right, folks, that's going to do it for today. The Moody River Band, thank you very much. That's the music that you're listening to. Our studio sponsor, Hatching Leaders, and the phone line sponsor, the Bakken Barbecue. The Bakken Barbecue phone lines is how we like to refer to it. Provolone, excellent job today. Thank you very much. Folks, I appreciate it. And Senator Hoven, one more time, I do apologize for my unprofessional behavior yesterday. From the staff here at the Crude Life Podcast, my name is Jason Spies, asking you to always remember energy is more than an industry, it's a way of life.
try to behave and try not to get your mind blown. Mind blown, your mind blown. I'll show you something that's never been shown. Mind blown, your mind blown, and that's all.
The Crude Life, every Monday through Thursday with a week in review on Friday.